I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. From the Society for Nautical Research in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis. And this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to this, our fifth edition of a great Sea Fight special. If you have missed out on the others, do please find them in our back catalogue online at snr.org.uk. We have multiple episodes exploring the histories of the Battle of Tsushima in 1905, Jutland in 1916. We've also covered the Battle of Cape St. Vincent in 1797 and the Battle of the River Plate of 1939, that key naval engagement at the very start of the Second World War. Now, obviously, we have been ignoring the medieval period. We couldn't allow that to continue. So this mini-series brings you a lot of detail about one of the most iconic of medieval sea battles, the Battle of Saint-Mathieu of the 10th of August, 1512. This particular episode brings to you a discussion about the problems posed to historians trying to recreate a medieval sea fight. Today, I speak with Dr. Dominic Fontana, retired senior lecturer in geography, formerly at the University of Portsmouth. He's a fellow of the Society of Antiquaries, a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society, and Dominic has over 35 years involvement in the Mary Rose Maritime Archaeological Project, including five years working as part of the archaeological team. He is an expert at recreating ancient tidal systems. Dominic and I discuss these problems both in relation to the Battle of Saint-Mathieu of August 1512, but also the Battle of the Solent of July 1545, in which the Mary Rose sank. Here's Dominic. Dominic, thank you so much for talking to me today. Well, thank you for inviting me to. So, um... You are one of the few people in the world who's helped recreate a medieval sea fight with your work on the Mary Rose. Um, When did you first come up with the idea of doing this? Well, some while back, it was... um, I've been involved in the Mary Rose project for nearly 40 years. And um, one of the things that really intrigued me when I became involved was the cowdray engraving. That's the picture that shows the battle at Portsmouth and the sinking of the Mary Rose herself. And it's a picture that's packed with detail and incident about what went on in the battle, including the positions of the fleets and the various ships involved. And as I live on the Isle of Wight and cross the Solent very frequently, um, I'm also very aware of the, uh, the, the need to understand the movement of the, the tides and the currents in the Solent, if you're going to have a battle there. Um, So some while back, um, I started looking into the nature of the the tide and the relationship with the moon um, on the basis that one should be able to work out what the tide was for, in the case of the sinking of the Mary Rose, the 19th of July, 1545. That's some challenge. I I wouldn't know where to begin. How how did you actually begin to do that? Well, a straightforward observation, which is that um, in the Solent, high tide is about 12 o'clock when it's full moon. So 12 o'clock midday. And that relationship is pretty fixed. It varies a little either side of that. But in general terms, um, as long as you know the phase of the moon you're able to make an assessment of the, uh, the tidal times. And if you can make an assessment of the tidal times, you can start to make an assessment of the tidal current flows. Um, it yeah. gives you a great deal of information if you can do that. Just for those people who are listening and don't understand the way that tides work, let's just explain that a little and then how the, how the flow changes. Well, the, the flow 
um, is in and out. Um, it comes in up to high tide every 12 hours and a bit each day and then flows out again and then back again in the next 12 hours and a bit. It's a 28-day cycle, pretty much. Um, it's caused by the relationship between the moon and the earth and the gravitational pull of the moon on the water on the surface of the earth. So it sort of produces a bulge um, of the sea as the uh, gravitational pull pulls off in one direction. And the relationship is, is very fixed, so that if you know whereabouts in the lunar cycle one is for a particular date, you can work back from that to ascertain the time of high tide. In the Solent, um, it's very clear. It's very easy to understand. Um, and the tidal currents are directly related to the state of the tide. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm from. I live in in Exeter and uh, spend a lot of time out on the Exestery, which is deadly. I think it's a absolutely. bit like the Solent. <laughs> and um, I think the point is, is that uh, you know that the water is slack. Not much happens either side of, of dead low or dead high tide, and then it increases in ferocity. Exactly so, and th this is what one needs to understand because if you're sailing um, large, uh, full-masted ships they only have the ability to move directly from the wind, um, but they also have a considerable influence on where they go, provided by the current. So if you can understand the current flows, you can understand how fast the ships would go, you can understand the directions in which they would travel easily, and equally those directions in which they would find difficulty in travelling. Um, in the case of the, the Battle of the Solent, in which the Mary Rose was lost, it occurs in a very constrained piece of waterway where the flows are on a flood tide from east to west and then on an ebb tide from west to east with slack tide of no movement or uh, you know, sort of complicated um, eddies and so on in between those. So with flood tide coming from, west, uh, from east to west, so flood tide from east to west would give you a flow um, into the eastern Solent. And that's important in understanding the disposition of the, particularly the English ships um, who were sitting in the Solent with their bows facing into the current. So um, uh, during that particular battle, uh, the English ships were held bow on to the attacking French for part of the day. It's, it's quite complicated to visualise all of this. <laughs> It is, um, and you've done some wonderful maps. I enjoyed looking at those with the, uh, you can see how the tidal flow changed. Let's just go back a few steps. And you said it all depends on whether you know the phase of the moon for a given date. How do you know that? Well, there, there are calculations that are available and uh, websites that will list um, the phase of the moon. Um, NASA did a load of calculations and produced tables of these things some while back. So that's generally where this data comes from. Um, so there are tables that will give you the, the uh, uh, phase of the moon for that, um, that time. Now, again, there are all sorts of added complications in this, not least of which is the change in calendar from um, the Julian calendar to the uh, Gregorian calendar that we use today. And so, oh, right. so, so the 10th of August in, in 1512 is not the 10th of August today, uh, is that it, the point? Pretty much. There's about a 10-day difference uh, right. between the two. Now, the, in the NASA um, data, they've already taken that into account. So we don't need to worry about that. We can just look up um, the, the specific date for, for that uh, particular thing that you're trying to look at. So, in the, case of, in the case of the Mary Rose uh, and the sinking of the Mary Rose, the battle took place on the 19th of July, 1545. And uh, from the uh, NASA data, 
we can tell that the moon was full on the 23rd of July, 1545, taking into account the uh, change of calendars. Um, so therefore, we know that we need to count back four days before uh, a full moon to get the right tidal uh, position, which would give us a, a tide for the 19th of July, high tide, at about nine o'clock in the morning in the Solent. Hmm. Now, and then things get really complicated as well, don't they? <laughs> because of all the different types of ships there, I suppose. Well, that's right. And, you know, again, we've got to really consider um, the nature of a battle in the Tudor period at sea. Um, you've got a mix of different ship types. Uh, you've got those ships that are powered solely by wind. You've got some ships that are powered by both wind and by oars. Um, in the case of the Battle of the Solent, the French had brought um, about 25 Mediterranean galleys with them, all the way from um, Genoa and Venice, having sailed all the way through the Mediterranean, Straits of Gibraltar, up past Portugal, across the Bay of Biscay, um, to, to join the French attacking fleet. Unimaginable in a road galley. I, I still can't believe they actually managed to do that. Well, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's an awfully long way to come in what are relatively small vessels, um, certainly some extremely tricky waters coming across the Bay of Biscay, um, and uh, would have required enormous effort and um, a, a very considerable ability with logistics to be able to keep enough supplies available for those ships or to have representatives to meet them at various points around the coast so that they could take on food and water uh, and that there would be money to pay for those things as they made their journey. So the French really, I think, must have gone to an enormous amount of trouble to bring the galleys with them. Therefore, they must have considered that having Mediterranean galleys in uh, the English Channel and the Solent would be an enormously useful uh, thing to them um, and a great sort of strategic advantage. Um, now, quite what, whether that actually worked for them or not is difficult to ascertain at this point. Um, yeah. It makes me wonder whether they knew just how whooshy the water was in the Solent and that actually the area between the Isle of Wight and Portsmouth is not a lake. Uh, no, it is certainly not a lake. It <laughs> tends to be quite uh, quite active water. The currents are important. The uh, surface of the water is important to what you can do. But, um, you know, the tactics that the English employed in those circumstances again, are really quite interesting because they basically sat out at the middle of Spithead, across, across the deep water channel, um, denying the French entrance into either Portsmouth or into um, uh, Southampton, um, thereby keeping the French sitting out at uh, St Helens Roads, just off the eastern end of the Isle of Wight. Um, it, it was almost a stalemate position in a way um, because the English couldn't really get their big ships up and away without a, a large amount of wind being available to them to, to get some motive power so that they could either um, sail out of the Solent and into the uh, English Channel. Um, but again, as uh, that caused all sorts of problems for the English because... They were seriously outnumbered. The French had brought about uh, 225, 230 ships with them, and the English had about 60. So, you know, that's nearly three to one outnumbered. Um, yeah. So, so one, you know, wonders about the, uh, the nature of the battle. So anyway, um, Going back to the tides, one can calculate the tides, one can calculate the current flows, and because they're very predictable, you're able to work out then what the positions of both the attacking and the defending fleets were at the outset of the battle, and how that might have progressed 
through the day. And I think it's very important to remember that the Battle of the Solent in which the Mary Rose was sunk wasn't just a, a short skirmish. It was something that took place over several days. Um, and the, the naval action certainly took place over an, quite a number of hours. Um, the French accounts claimed that they started in the morning when they had an advantage. And if we look at the tidal current, that is certainly the case because they were able to um, run into the Solent from St. Helens Roads assisted by the, uh, the the tidal flow into the Solent. So they could run in towards the English ships held at anchor at about six or seven knots. That's pretty fast for uh, vessels of that period. That meant, in turn, that the French galleys, with oars as well as sails, as well as the current, could go right close into the bows of the English ships, loose off their forward-facing ordnance, usually about two or four large bronze guns mounted in the bows of the, uh, the French galleys, straight into the, the bows of the English ships, turn around and then row like crazy back towards safety and the rest of the, the French fleet. And you know, that's exactly what's shown in the Cowdray picture of the sinking of the Mary Rose, that the French have sent four galleys into the Solent, and they're shown in the Cowdray picture as sitting at no man's land, which is uh, halfway between the English fleet and the French fleet. Um, and it's an area of shallow water where the galleys could go, but the big English ships certainly couldn't go so that they, they were fairly protected at that point. And from no man's land, they'd be able to make a run directly in towards the bows of the English ships, fire their guns, turn around, run away, back to no man's land, reload, regroup, turn around and have another go. And they could mm. keep that up for about five hours or so, uh, as long as they had the strength to row in and row back. Um, and in the case of the tides on that day, they had a following tide for the French, pushing them in towards the English ships. And interestingly, the French accounts of the battle say that the tide turned in the afternoon, which indeed it does, and that um, the English ships were then rotated, were rotated so that their sterns faced towards the French, which gave the English a chance to fire their stern-chasing guns at the French as they came into attack. And the French attack would be slower because they were rowing against the current, but their escape velocity would be rather higher because by that stage of the day, the current would be with them. Um, yeah. so, so, so the English ships had put their bows into the, into the tide, haven't they? Well, they have in the morning and then in the afternoon... When the tide has turned, the, the English ships on their anchor cables would rotate round the other way. Yeah. Um, so this would become um, a, a change in the nature of the battle. And the other thing that we know about the 19th of July, 1545, was that uh, the reports, both from the English side and from the French side, say that there was no wind, that it was a, a, a very calm day. And in the Solent, that happens when you've got a high-pressure uh, weather system sitting over the Solent. And you end up with a very, very calm uh, day through the morning. By the time you get towards the middle of the afternoon, two, three o'clock, um, the sea breeze tends to blow up from the southwest so that you suddenly get the possibility of making uh, or having some wind that might allow you to, to get a big square-rigged ship going. And indeed, in the case of the Mary Rose, that's almost certainly what happened, that late afternoon, mid to late afternoon, they up-anchored, put up uh, a sail on the foremast, and then headed across the Solent, heading northwards, so that they could bring the starboard side guns to bear on the attacking French galleys. 
And we know that they did fire off the guns on the starboard side of the Mary Rose because we found those guns in a discharged condition. They'd been fired. Um, now, she only had the chance to make that one passage northwards um, before she sank. Now, something happened catastrophically at that point, um, and it may be that she was holed earlier in the day and had taken in some water and therefore was not sailing correctly, um, possibly with water down in the hold of the Mary Rose. Um, and that gives rise to the distinct possibility of a, a free surface effect of water sloshing around in the hull, um, that if it pushes over to one side suddenly, it'll completely upset the balance of the ship, uh, pulling it down. We don't know yet. We've got lots more um, work to do to discern what actually happened. But it's 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 so um, uh, fascinating realizing how how I mean you can say just quite glibly that the wind and the tide are important to a medieval sea fight. But once you really kind of drill down into it, you realize uh, you know how complex it is and how much more there is for us to understand about about exactly what happened. And I think more importantly for historians, why it all happened. And I, I love the fact that with the Mary Rose, you've got the the, the wonderful cowdray engraving. So for those of you who are listening, I'll make sure I put a link to this. Um, onto onto Facebook and onto the uh, SNR home uh, page for the Mariners Mirror podcast for this episode, so you can see what we're talking about. But the Cowdery engravings really are magnificent. And there is an artist who um, he's not just drawing what he's seeing; he's absolutely trying to tell us something from the past. He knows it's going to be seen, and he really is doing his best to um, to to describe an immensely complicated event. I think that's absolutely right, Sam. It is so packed with detail and every time one checks out the various details they always check out as correct yeah so i've got a great deal of faith in the truth of what the picture is telling us about what was an immensely complex event um, both in terms of the military technology involved and the natural environment within which all of that happened to be able to bring all of those things together and tease out the details is the, the crucial thing because a medieval naval battle um, relies on the interaction between technology of the time, the people, the command structures and that natural environment, the wind, the waves, the tide. Yeah. With written letters, it's it's not often the case, I don't think, that maybe it is with important letters, that someone has written it in the past knowing that there are going to be people pouring over that document in the future. But it's very different with imagery. And um, I love the sense of this 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 Tudor artist sitting down and going, right, now, come on, <laughs> try and work out this bit. You know what I'm trying to say. Come on, have a think. I think this is fascinating. It really is. The The original picture that was at Cowdray House at Midhurst in Sussex was commissioned by Sir Anthony Brown. Uh, he was master of the king's horse, and he's shown prominently in the centre of the image, riding just behind Henry himself. So it's very much a picture that's intended to memorialise uh, Sir Anthony's involvement in saving the kingdom, um, his involvement in these great events. But it's also really evident that he's included in the picture all of the things that are important to him in terms of his political and family connections, but also that the accuracy of the events is exactly so. I think today we might consider him to be a really expert railway modeler, <laughs> somebody to whom the little details matter enormously. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a fabulous picture. It really is. It's like a, it's a, a drawing of a diorama, isn't it? It is, and it's in terms of Tudor technology of being able to depict a series of events. It's very much like a, a movie, a movie script, um, showing all sorts of things going on in a sequence, but within one picture. And I think we've also got to remember that uh, 
Sir Anthony had this installed, painted in his dining parlour at Cowdray House. The place where he could go with his chums after events and so on, and he could stand there and talk about the great events and use the painting as his visual aid, as his PowerPoint, to be able to show his audience everything that went on. Yeah, that's wonderful. It's <laughs> fantastic stuff. Um, this brings us to the Battle of St Matthew in 1512, so 33 years beforehand. Now, um, we do not <laughs> have a beautiful engraving of um, what was going on at the Battle of St Matthew. So how did we go around working out what happened there? Well, again, we can look at the landscape. Um, there are maps from the period that show approximately where things were. Um, we can certainly work out the tidal movements for um, the area. Um, again, the same methodology can be applied to that, of looking for the, uh, the moon phase for the 10th of August, uh, 1512. And um, it was a new moon on the 11th of August, 1512. So it's one day before new moon. So immediately we know that the tide is on what is called a spring tide, which is at the biggest extent between low tide and high tide. So at high tide, it's come up further. There's more water in the system. Uh, that means that the currents are going to be running at their strongest. Um, we can then simply look for um, a modern equivalent of that at roughly the same time of year. And so this is taking place just off Brest in the Brittany Peninsula. So we can look that up. And for example, for this year, um, it was new moon on the 8th of August 2021. Uh, so that gives a height, a low tide of um, uh, just after 12 o'clock midday um, with a high tide just before six o'clock in the morning. Now, that's looking at a modern set of data, which will include the, uh, the, the, the nature of timekeeping these days. And that is the French time. Uh, French summer time is two hours ahead of Greenwich mean time, um, which is approximately solar noon uh, in the area. So we again got to make some uh, compensations for this. So in practical terms, we'd probably be looking at uh, the the tide being um, a couple of hours earlier. So that would give you low tide at about uh, 10 o'clock in the morning, except that we probably then need to uh, allow for um, how far west the site is. Uh, that's how far it is from the Greenwich Meridian. And in the case of Brest, that's probably somewhere around about an hour later mm. for local solar noon. This gets horribly complicated. It's great. Um, I love it. <laughs> it also, the other problem is that Tudor timekeeping, yeah. um, apart from being local and not national, um, also was a little bit on the vague side. Um, so, you know, we can pin things down to within about 15 minutes, half an hour or so yeah. um, on the basis of how they would have perceived time to be where they were. So in general terms, we'd probably be looking at low tide on, on that day, on the 10th of August, 1512, at probably around about 11, 11.30 um, in, in the morning. So from there, we can then go and start working out the detail of the, uh, the tidal currents and so on. Mm. Um, all quite complicated, but it's very important to the understanding of how events would play out in those circumstances. 
We should say a little bit about the... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The geography of, of the Brest Roads there, um, I've, I've been lucky enough to sail there um, in, a, in a modern yacht. Uh, and also a square oh. rigger. But I, I, would, I would definitely not want to sail there in a medieval carrack. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's uh, plenty of things to uh, come to grief on. Um, so not an easy piece of waterway to navigate. Um, I certainly wouldn't want to try it, I can tell you. Um, <laughs> Hidden rocks, narrow narrow gullies um, and, and vicious, fierce tides. But then if one is taking a big military risk, and is wishing to achieve a great victory, perhaps those are the calculations that one considers to be worth uh, taking the risk on. Yeah, very good point. And it's, it's very interesting that the, you know, the French were completely surprised by the English attack. And um, it may be that they, they took a great deal of security in their surroundings and in their location, just thinking it would be madness for anyone to try and attack them. I'm sure they did. And, um, you know, strangely enough, if we think to the Mary Rose battle in 1545, the English made that same mistake in a way, um, in that their naval position was one of blockage that uh, the French couldn't really attack, which served its purpose because they did stop the invasion. But there was no way that the English could bring any real power to bear militarily on the French. Now, it could be that in those circumstances, they were relying on diplomatic efforts and perhaps uh, military intelligence to be able to deal with the problem in the long term. I mean, in the case of uh, the Mary Rose battle, it was widely known right throughout the courts of Europe, that both Henry and Francois in France were not well men and therefore unlikely to last any great amount of time. And perhaps the commanders would take a chance on uh, incurring the wrath of the king in the knowledge that he might not last that long. Mm-hmm. It's, it's difficult to know. Um, in the case of the, the, the Battle of Saint-Mathieu, um, you know, there we've got a new king who's recently come to the throne. He's vigorous and uh, wants to be seen as, as the warrior prince, wants to be seen to have his navy and his court taking real action. Um, and so the political context of that battle is very different. Also, the, the ships that... Uh, he was using in um, the Battle of Saint-Mathieu, were new. They hadn't been around for any great amount of time. Um, And consequently, you know, you've got these new toys. You want to try them out, (laughs) see how well they work. Um, And people, I think, would have been quite gung-ho about it at that stage. Yeah, that's a fascinating point, isn't it? Maybe um, almost sort of... um over overestimating the capability we, we, we shouldn't i think there's a great deal of surprise of the, the the huge explosions which um which happened at that battle as well um and and people sort of coming to grips with the new technology you know the the, the artillery on board ship absolutely so i mean you know in a world without big machinery without diesel engines and steam engines and things like that you know, you, you'd, people would be unused to big noises. They'd be very surprised by vast amounts of smoke. It's like going into the, the, the jaws of hell, really. Um, and it really would have been quite a, a, a huge um, change for all of those involved 
even those possibly used to things like guns going off on ships, um, really to be able to to deal with all that new technology, that change. Mm. I suppose seamanship is so much to do with having confidence in your immediate surroundings. Um, I say that because I um, spent a bit of time and suddenly I was on a ship and there were 13 dogs on it and it ruined everything. And I didn't know what to do. There was too much noise. There was too much barking. There were animals running around. Um, And in some respects, I think it might have been a bit like that to suddenly have loads of cannon and gunpowder on board. You, you really, you suddenly sort of slightly lose control and, and wonder what on earth is going to happen next. Absolutely so. I mean, the disorienting effects of that must have been quite catastrophic for most people. You know, they're used to a, a fairly straightforward rural domestic life. Even life aboard a ship was very domestic. Um, and to suddenly find this, this chaos going on with huge noise and lots of smoke and commands coming from all directions uh, would be very difficult to cope with. Yeah, and the terror of a burning ship, which we have at the, the Battle of San Mattia as well. Um, Dominic, you've given us so much to think about. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Well, thank you, Sam. I thoroughly enjoyed myself. Next up, we have Tim Concannon, a practising barrister and author. Tim was born and brought up in Portsmouth and has nurtured a deep interest in naval history since childhood. Tim's book, Jutland, A Yank's Tale, tells the fictional story of a lieutenant in the United States Navy who finds himself at the Battle of Jutland. In recent weeks, Tim has been working on recreating a chart of the Battle of Saint-Mathieu, showing the possible tracks of the ships involved. Here's Tim. Tim, thank you so much for talking to me today. Absolute pleasure, Sam. Delightful sunny day, and uh, we can <laughs> carry on. It is, isn't it? It's lovely. Um, the Battle of St. Mathieu. Uh, how did you begin to start thinking about this, how, how, how we might recreate it? Well, we have a number of givens. Um, we know the tide is going out um, until midday. It's coming in after that. We know the English are sighted at 11 o'clock, and the action was over within three hours. We know the horizon from a mast 100 foot high is 12 miles, and 100 foot is probably a good height for a mast on, in a medieval ship. We know that the Mary James and the Sovereign are disabled, but they're not captured. We know that the Neff de Dieppe is damaged, but manages to get back into action, and on the weather side of the Cordillere, outside the balance of the English fleet. We know the Louise is disabled, but not captured. We know from the picture that the regent is shown to leeward of the Cordillere, and we know that the English fleet appears from the Molen Passage. And we also know the sea is lively. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, it's, um, Houleuse is the French word for it, which is lively. Yeah. So, so we, we, we know all of that from documents. Uh, what, are the, what are the sources? Well, the sources are the letters, the reports um, in English and in French, and uh, with the good offices of Dom Fontana, who can calculate the tide. Uh, so these are all contemporary um, sources, contemporary letters. Yeah. And you said you referenced a picture there. We're saying that the regent is shown to leeward of the Cordillere. What picture is that? Yes, the picture is a rather a wonderful um painting which is actually reproduced and uh, you can see it in the letters and papers of the French War of 1512 to 1514. It was actually I think a French source uh, because Hervé de Postmogue, who was the Breton uh, admiral, was something of a hero and the Bretons and the French made a great thing of it and indeed there's some rather bad poetry saying along the lines of the boy stood on the burning deck that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's fantastic, isn't it? Um, I'll just say to our listeners that I'll make sure that there is an image of um, uh, on, online of the Regent and the Cordillere with the flames. And the, yes. It's all very dramatic indeed. So we, we from this sort of 
foundation where we've got we've got a, we've got some sources. We certainly haven't got anything like the amount of sources that we'd have for a 17th or an 18th century naval battle. But we've kind of got just about enough. And from Dominic Fontana, we've got an idea of the tides. We and and certainly the the landscapes not changed and the seascape. So we know exactly where it happens. And if you put it all together, then we can start to to you know sort of tease out a little bit more information uh, you then moved on to some consequential assumptions you described them as yes these are assumptions that must follow from the given facts so the first thing is the english were sighted at less than 12 miles uh, because if they were sighted further than that then the french would have been able to get together get their act together but they weren't so therefore they must have come behind an island which we can work out we know that the Mary James and Sovereign were disabled before the tide turned, or else they'd have drifted into the bay and not out of it. And we know that the Neft de Dieppe was also disabled before the tide turned, but she was able to make the necessary repairs, and she would have then come in on the flood tide, which would have put her on the weather side of the Cordillere, because she was attacking the English that were attacking the Cordillere. Um, the Louise must have been disabled, that's the French flagship, must have been disabled after the tide turned or else she'd have been captured. Again, the wind can't have been any further north and west because if it was, the English couldn't have made the passage without being seen. We know that the prevailing wind in that area is southwesterly. In either case, the French and Breton fleet would not have been able to go to sea. It would also result in a wind across the tide, which would make for a lumpy sea. So there we've got our... Uh, Hulu's sea. Yeah. So those must follow from the givens. We can then move on to some reasonable assumptions. Uh, the wind was fresh. In actual fact, when I reread the French account, is that wind is described as uh, as fresh. Good speed for one of these ships on a fresh wind on a quarter would be six knots, which is two leagues. Tidal stream, maximum tidal stream in that area is about four knots at peak flow tails off in a sine curve at either end of the cycle. The ships are capable of tacking, passing through the wind. Now, I can go into that in a bit more detail for you if you wish me to do that. Mm. Yeah, why, why not? Let's just have a, a little bit of exploring that while we're there. Well, the 15th century, the beginning of the 15th century, 1400, the standard rig for a ship was a single mast with a single sail. By the beginning of the 1500s, we know that the ships are up to four masts. Now, typically, you've got square rig on the foremast and on the mainmast, and you've got a lateen rig on the aftermasts, and they doubled by the beginning of the 16th century, by the beginning of the 1500s. So you've got two lateen mizzens. Now, we know that these ships had huge forecastles, which are wind traps. Now, one of the ways of getting a ship to turn is to take it through the wind. Now, if you've got a wind trap in a forecastle, then that's going to push you downwind and you're not going to be able to turn through it. But what you can do is that you can erect um, a further wind trap, a movable wind trap in the after part of the ship. So we can actually follow through with Henry V's ships. And, you know, these are the Agincourt ships uh, that... By we get to the Grasdure, which is a massive ship from 1418, it's got, we know it's got a mizzen. We also have a very good picture of a ship, which is probably the Trinity, which has a mainsail and a mizzen, but no forecast, no, no foremast. So what you can do is that if you flat out your mizzen, that will counteract the wind drag of the forecastle and you can turn your ship through the wind. Mm, helps it pivot round. That's in it. Theory. <laughs> in theory. In uh, theory. Years ago, when the Matthew replica was first um, it was first prepared, is that I got a trip on it, and um, I was trying to get them to try and work that work that through. But the ship was so new that they decided they weren't going to do that, which is a bit of a shame because it might have might have actually proved the theory. That's the Matthew replica, which is in Bristol now. That's right. It is. Yes. Mm. I was allowed to play with it for a little while, which was great. Very good. So uh, what other reasonable assumptions can we make about this sea battle? Um, that the Franco-Breton fleet were riding to single action, anchors with head into the tidal stream, reinforced the way, because they were, they were waiting for the wind to change so they could uh, sail and cause havoc 
in England. Mm. Uh, but of course, the English got there first. We also can think that in casting off the anchors, Cordelier, Louise and Neuf de Dieppe would have worn round using their mizzen sails and then tacked to head off the advancing fleet. Now, one of the things you can do with these ships is you can actually go astern and then put your rudder over the other way, and that will also take you through the wind. Another reasonable assumption is the ability of the Sovereign to manoeuvre was hampered by battle damage because we know that she actually missed her target. She was supposed to be grappling with the Cordelier, but she didn't. And then simply for convenience, I've made a couple of arbitrary assumptions, which is Cordelier was to the north, close to the shore with the Neuf de Dieppe and Louise to the south. And also when I tracked it out on the chart, we can see that the Mary Rose is getting uncomfortably close to the Point de Capuchin. And so I'm assuming that she bore across the stern of the, Lou the Louise to rake her. Yeah. I always so wonder what happened to the Mary Rose in the battle. Because we know a bit about what she did at the beginning, but then not much else. No, all we know is that, uh, it, it, it is that she um, disabled the Louise and uh, the English claim that the Louise was dismasted. And now these masts are huge things. They're, uh, we have one um, from what is probably the Sovereign. Uh, which was uh, excavated in the 1890s. And this mast is it, it's about 20 feet around, so it's sort of eight feet in diameter. And we can see some of this in the literature. Yeah. So um, from all of this, what, what else do you think would be really good to know that we, we haven't been able to find out? Um, I'd quite like to know what happened to the rest of the English fleet, because there is an account uh, that... Um, because the Regent and the Cordelier were so damaging each other, and we're looking, this is within three hours, that actually the English were reinforcing the Regent, and so they were landing troops on the Regent whilst it was in the middle of the battle. And the French sources seem to just yet seem to suggest that that is why um, someone set light to the Cordelier, which exploded just off the Capuchin Point. Yeah. I would love to be able to find the wreckage of both of those ships. Mm. I wonder if they're there. <laughs> I well, must be it's, still it's, there. It's, it's rocky, it, unlike Portsmouth, where we have this wonderful mud, which is so great at preserving things. I suspect there's probably nothing very much left of them. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's, a, it's a wonderfully early fight to be able to, to apply this to. Isn't it? Do you think that this this kind of technique of given facts, consequential assumptions, and reasonable assumptions is 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 fair to apply to I don't know naval battles of a later period where we do know more? Is it still still worthwhile? It is worthwhile because once we know what the tides are, then it, the whole um, sequence begins to make sense, and you can actually work out what's what's going on, or in all likelihood, what's going on. Yeah, I think it gives you such a keener sense of the complexities of sea battle as well. Even if you just open up the questions of what might have happened and what we can assume happened, you suddenly realise that there there is there is so much going on which would you know really allow us for more 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 in depth historical research. Well, yes, uh, and I mean these ships are nightmares to manoeuvre. Uh, you, you've got these huge castles, uh, and uh, they are. We know that the Mary Rose sailed fast because, oddly enough, in uh, the next season is that the fleet raced uh, from the tower round the Foreland to Portsmouth and the Mary Rose uh, was the fastest. And when you look at the lines of the Mary Rose, they are absolutely beautiful. But of course, speed and manoeuvrability are not the same thing. No, no. And it's interesting having, having to, if you look at the chart, just to see it is an enclosed area and you've got so many vessels manoeuvring maneuver, around and they're all, you know, actually relatively clumsy because they're only 16th century, century yeah. ships that to, to attribute much sort of sense of determination to what was happening is probably a little unfair. There was certainly a large, a larger degree of chaos going on here. Yes, there was very much so. And of course, the, this was the first battle in which the heavy guns were used. Prior to that is that the object is to get on board and uh, drop your troops and mm. uh, hence the castles. Yeah. Uh, and it makes you think that um, 
also, being able to harness the tide and use the tide would have been such a key part of seamanship, uh, just because of the sort of the limited ability of to of being able to put up a sail and move a ship quickly. What you can do is you can drift down in a direction very yes. easily and quickly indeed. Yes, indeed. And of course, these guys would have been experts in in their trade, yeah, because yeah. seamanship is something that is required of anyone dealing with a, a ship going back into antiquity. Yeah, and particularly around around Brest. <laughs> yeah. No, oh, no well, one, yes. no one's can survive unless you, you're a good seaman around Brest. Well, that's what the Napoleonic fleet, the Napoleonic Wars, showed with the blockade of Brest. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Tim, thank you so much for this. Uh, and I think it's it's raised so many questions about the battle and um, will give people lots to think about. Sam, that's my pleasure. Thank you all so much for listening. Do please follow us wherever you engage on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram or YouTube. Please check out our YouTube channel. There's some really fabulous, innovative stuff there um, showing the maritime historical world in a new way. And for those of you listening on an iPhone, please take a few moments to rate or review the podcast on iTunes. It really makes a huge difference and takes just a few seconds. Best of all, please join the Society for Nautical Research. You can do it at snr.org.uk. It really doesn't cost very much, but it supports this podcast. You also get four journals a year and you also can sign up to come to our annual dinner on board HMS Victory, which is immense fun. And your subscription, of course, supports all of the worthwhile good that society does to publish the world's most important maritime history and to preserve our maritime past.